Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. I'm recording this in Spain after several days in Paris. Very lucky to go to Disneyland Paris with my children for the 30th anniversary, a place where I spent some time working some years ago, which was a crazy experience. I've probably told some stories about it on the podcast uh, before, and I'm sure I'll tell some again at some point. But it was incredible to be back. Really, really good fun. And then also showing my kids around Paris, the city, for a couple of days afterwards. They'd never been. And I'm not going to say it was without its challenges, travelling with children on my own, especially to three different centres, because we stayed in Disney, Paris, the city, and then down here to Spain. All that packing and unpacking. But it was uh, it was well worth it and, and really good. And it's just such a buzz to be travelling again. I hope you've managed to have some travels yourselves and have some interesting ones planned as well, which I hope to do very soon. Now, a quick warning to anyone listening with kids or anyone sensitive to swear words. I'm about to utter a swear word in the introduction to this episode. I'm not going to beep it out. It's the title of our guest today's own podcast. But after that intro, it's all reasonably clean. So if you're sensitive to a swear word, skip forward until after the introduction. Now, we all have career successes and failures in life, ambitions we achieve, yet also ones we're too afraid to attempt, but then might regret it, or one day we might just make that leap. My guest today, on the advice of none other than Joan Rivers, ditched her high-flying career in television at the age of 45 to start again at the very bottom of the ladder as a full-time comedian, a move that has now paid off with a lot of travelling, a lot of stand-up all over the world and regular TV appearances. She has many an inspirational thought on grabbing life by the balls, how we navigate through both life lessons and also the world we live in. See what I did there? It's a travel metaphor. I'm sure you got it. Anyway, here we go. Here's my guest. Remember the swear word coming up too. Stand-up comedian, star of comedy TV shows and host of the Namaste Motherfuckers podcast, Callie Beaton has jetted off to some of the world's most hottest parties when working as a high-flying TV exec, knocking back vodka with Madonna and Goldie, flying business class and staying in the best hotels. She promises she's actually more at home in a tent at the zoo, a nice one of course, and getting dumped by boyfriend, a not very nice one it seems, at the airport in Iceland. Live from her laundry cupboard in Amsterdam. It's Callie Beaton. Why are you in a laundry cupboard in Amsterdam? 
I'm in a laundry cupboard in Amsterdam because I live here part of the time. So my uh, my kids are half Dutch, uh, but I'm not with their dad anymore. Just oversharing right at the start. So I've always had a kind of link to Amsterdam. And uh, when Brexit happened together with a Dutch friend who's in property, I decided we would, well, we decided we'd invest some money, not in the UK. In a laundry so cupboard. In a laundry cupboard. So I'd actually live in, the, it's not like Harry Potter. We do have, we do have a sort of rest of a flat. Um, so, yeah. So I'm over here quite a bit, but when we're doing recordings, I've discovered if I do it, it's, it's an old converted um, grain warehouse, a beautiful old, it's a huge building. Not that we have the whole of the grain warehouse, but unless I'm in this little cupboard, it literally sounds like I'm screaming out of an open window. So this is where I am. So it's, I love, um, I love it's the very way you're justifying yourself. <laughs> the, I, I'm not in the laundry cupboard, but I'm not in the big grain warehouse. You're somewhere between the laundry cupboard and the, the grain warehouse in terms of size of house. And probably in terms of status as well. It's really a good yeah. metaphor to sum up my life, to be honest. So, yes, it's nice to be talking to you in my running kit in a laundry cupboard in oh, Amsterdam. Well, That's quite fitting for your podcast. I'm kind it? of jealous of the Amsterdam thing. I used to live there. I'm funny enough, I'm in Spain at the moment. So, why are you in Spain? I'm with my children, who uh, dad isn't Spanish, but I am no longer with their dad and my husband. And uh, but my parents live here, so I grew up in Spain. Ah, I okay. did move to Amsterdam once at the toss of a coin. Why did yeah. you move here? Because it, it was it was tails and we had to. We were drinking and uh, we did a toss of the coin and it really? was tails. We moved the next day. Yeah. How amazing. Yeah. It I went moved badly. Quite, did it go, but where yeah. did you live? Were you in the centre? I remember uh, behind Leader's Plane at first. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that's pretty central. Very yeah. central. That was just for three nights. We only had enough for three nights in a hostel. But then I bumped into some... A Danish guy that I went to school with here, he knew some Swedish girls who were living in a flat and they emptied one of their beds for us, jumped in a bed together and we stayed with them for a few months. Wow. <laughs> well, there's a story. I came quite quickly. I met my kid's dad in London, uh, obviously pre us having kids or it would have been a miracle. And we moved fairly swiftly within, I thought swiftly, within six months we were here, not within six hours. So there you go. Yeah, that's that's an impetuous decision on your part I stayed three years so I lived here full-time for three years but that was ages ago that was you know 25 years ago describe to me um where it where you are what's it look like uh, the eastern Docklands it's called it's really lovely it's a bit so if you look at central station on a map um and you've got all the kind of horseshoe shapes of the canals we're along the river about a kilometer along the river to the east of central station and it's actually really beautiful people don't well some people in Amsterdam know this area but like it's a bit like um the sort of Shoreditch of London so it's at that sort of point of uh, development so it's so we're right on the water but not on a canal we're right on um on, on the river and there are these little sort of islands of with houses on and they're really it's really really beautiful I can absolutely picture that I thought you were there working I so- do work here as well yeah so I do do work here I do I normally gig when I'm over here and um, there's a really lovely a couple of lovely comedy venues um the comedy cafe where actually my my daughter's just finished studying at the university here and she used to work the bar at the comedy cafe I might add I was there first as a performer and then she got the job at the bar you can figure how that worked but once she started working on the bar now she lives in Madrid but once she was working on the bar she'd always be like you can't you can't come and perform when I'm working I'd be like excuse me I think you'll find it's meant to be the other way around so I gig a lot here um but this time now that we're in the zoom world as you know because we're recording this I've ended up, I mean, I might as well be anywhere. I've got three podcasts today. So it's like I'm going to be sitting in this cupboard for three hours of today 
even though it's beautiful sunshine and I'm in Amsterdam. So the downside of Zoom working and the upside is that we can do all this stuff anywhere. But then instead of going somewhere abroad and thinking, oh, now I can't work, you go abroad and you're like, well, I can still just film my diary. So, but yeah, I do do it. And I work, um, I do bits of television work over here as well. So yeah, I, I do. And I speak Dutch, useless skill, but I do. So yeah. I kind of, it is a home from home in a way. Yeah. So many opportunities for heckling when your mum's on stage <laughs> as the comedian and you're working behind the bar. Does that ever happen? Yeah, it definitely does. And I used to, um, as comedians do, we don't always, everything we say is vested in some kind of truth. But we don't tend to, you know, you might, if you've got a good joke about your kid being 14, you'll keep that joke going until your kid's 20, if it's a good joke. Um, and I, my kids were still, my daughter was still being referred to as a 16 year old. And by then she was like 20 and she was like, oh yeah, I'm still 16, am I? So now, and actually it was partly that, that made me start writing. I never used to admit how old my kids were because I don't think people realise I'm quite as old as I am always on stage. I do reveal my age um, at a certain point, but I was always wary at the beginning of saying my kid's real age in case anyone was like, oh my God, you're like a mum's age. We don't want to listen to you. Um, so, so it was kind of was strategic as well. But anyway, it partly spurred on by my my not 16-year-old daughter. I aged them up and I, doubt, I now do reveal their real ages on stage. You look incredibly young. Um, yeah, you do look incredibly young. So how old are you? I'm, going to ask. 53, I'm 53. How so, are you? You yeah. do look very young. Oh, thank you. But to me, 53 isn't old now. As a 47-year-old, it doesn't... 53 oh, you is look not very old good anyway. as well. We'll do a little mutual. Well, this if I look good in a laundry cupboard, maybe I'll just put all my uh, online dating profile pics. I'll retake them in totally. this laundry cupboard. It's obviously yeah. working for me. Maybe it's because it's so dark, you can't actually see me. <laughs> you know, it's nice. It's bright and everything. It looks good. Um, so tell me, how did you how did you get in? Well, obviously, I know a little bit, but... Um, for the for the sake of the listener who might not know you were in you were working in tv before you got into uh into stand-up I was yeah when when I heard about your podcast and I love your podcast by the way congrats it's fabulous fabulous and I when I heard about it I was like oh this is just perfect for me to go on because my whole life has been my whole life sort of working life adult life's revolved around travel really so um in terms of this is getting to your question of how I got into it so I worked for MTV when I was sort of in my mid-20s I actually I was living in Amsterdam applied for a job at MTV through the um trade paper broadcast magazine which I'm sure still exists but probably is an online publication now it's the only time I've ever applied for a job through a a physical paper and I sent off you know to try and get this job and then that actually started my kind of travel journey because I wasn't actually massively well traveled at the time I I was quite um, an insecure kind of young person and I was very nervous of travel so the fact that I was living in Amsterdam then getting flown to London and New York for a job interview was very counter to my life and my comfort zone anyway I got I got that job um and that well I can tell there's a lovely story about well lovely story that, that about the impact of that first trip to New York and that job interview there's a couple of things that came out of that trip in its own right and I then worked for MTV on and off for the next 20 odd years and MTV became I did do other things I worked for ITV and other broadcasters but I kept coming back it was like my homeland I loved I loved MTV more than anything. And then MTV became part of Viacom and Viacom also owned Comedy Central, still does. Now it's Paramount, which owns Viacom, but it, it still owned that stable still has Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, other channels in it. And so I was very much connected with Comedy Central, but Comedy Central in the US. So I worked for the US head office, but 
based in London. And so I used to meet on-screen talent from Comedy Central. I was a sort of boring business person, so I was there to generate revenue from content. So not a sexy job, but I did get involved sometimes in the sexy sort of side of things. So we would go to like Cannes or Banff or wherever, and we would bring on-screen talent with us in order to sort of generate interest in the shows that we had. And it was the late, great Joan Rivers who I got to know quite well. And I would sort of do, I'd be the sort of business executive who did a bit to the jaded drunk tv executives before whoever the turn was came on and did their thing and I did that for Joan Rivers a couple of times and it was Joan Rivers who said to me over dinner the last time I saw her and this was not long before she died she um she said you know you should do stand-up you've got a sort of natural thing on stage and I said you know I'm 45 I've I'm a single parent. I've got two kids. One of them's got special needs, massive day job. I can't, I can't, it's too late. And she was 81 at the time. And she just looked at me and said, I'm 81. You're going to realize that 45, you're in the heart of things. And it took, and this hopefully there might be somebody listening who might go, all oh, right. So that is young already at 53. I look back at 45 and think that was young, but when you're 45, you're really preoccupied with, Oh God, I'm middle aged now. It's kind of not game over, but you know, And so actually those words were really important to hear. So I would never, I would have always thought, because I went to drama school, but I never pursued it. And partly because I wasn't a very good actor and I would never have been very good at it. But, and also I just didn't have the confidence at the time. And I think I, yeah, you can spend your whole life going, well, I could have done that when I was young, but I can't now. And it's been a really powerful thing for me about the fact that you just can keep reinventing with ambition. And by the way, I have my difficult days, you know, this isn't a redemptive story. Um, it's not like, oh, it was perfect. I did my first gig and life was sorted. You know, it's a challenge like, like everybody's lives are, but I just, yeah, I think it's a really, with travel as well, you know, you, I don't want to be someone whose world gets smaller as I get older, either literally or metaphorically. I want to keep, I want to keep getting out there and feeling things and trying things and doing things and feeling the sun on my face in kind of different places. And I think that's, it's a really nice thing to realize you can just keep doing that. When Joan Rivers tells you you should try, you should be a stand-up comedian, you do it, right? I mean, if that's not a sign from anything, you know, that is a sign from anything. It reminds me, I was reading a, I flicked through a book in a museum, I never bought it, sorry about that, but I I flicked through this book that was something about, uh, with nonagenarians um, and people that had reached 100 as well, saying what they wished they'd have done. And um, an old lady, a hundred year old lady said that she'd wish she'd taken up the piano age 50 because she could have been playing for 50 years by now. Yeah, that's a really good, actually, that's the same kind of story, isn't it? Because you also, we're going to be, I do lots of kind of um, keynote and inspirational kind of speaking. That's, that's, you know, that pays a bit better than comedy and it's a not dissimilar skill. But they, um, I always sort of say to people there, if you're thinking about reinvention, probably people are going to be working what for a careers that span 50 years or something now no one's got safe pensions and if you're going to do that you might as well do things that you like everyone's gonna to have to reinvent whatever job anyone who's listening is doing if you think you are that job that's very risky especially if you're on someone else's payroll so when I was you know senior vice president at a massive U.S. studio I never felt that I had that status. So I was never traveling on my own dollar. I was never traveling in the front of planes or staying at the Four Seasons, even though I did do that for work when they went on a work trip. But I always knew, well, really, I'm not a person who's going to be sitting at the very front of planes and, and spending, you know, 700 quid a night in a hotel 
that isn't me. So I'm not really going to ever live like that. And I'm not really going to let it blow my skirt up. I'm going to sort of live with myself and my kids as I think we can actually live on our own merits. And, and, and I was right to think that because even though I was in and out of that company for 20 years, which is massively significant, I expect there will be at least another 20 years. You know, I gave up the day job a few years ago. There'll have been at least another 20 years of this career. So, and so it's kind of like anyone listening who's like, Oh, I'm defined by this is where I am. And this is, it never is whether you love it or hate it. Change is usually just around the corner and you never are going to be what it is you are that day for that long. So if you hate it, that's reassuring because you're like, well, it's going to go on forever. And if you love it, kind of hold on to it because the next thing will be different. So I suppose it, it didn't feel so weird to suddenly be much lower status because, you know, comedians are quite low status. You know, you're like, you know, get up on stage, make me laugh. Um, and it doesn't pay well. Being a comedian is a terribly badly paid thing to do. So I think it does. Um, I've gone off on a ramble, but I think it is it is about daring to try those new things and knowing that reinvention is not only something you could embrace but you sort of have to it's kind of inevitable isn't it I feel exactly the same exactly what everything you're saying I I absolutely agree with in terms of reinvention but also in that you know I fly uh, I get upgraded sometimes and I stay at the four seasons you don't get upgraded I don't know who does not always (laughs) but um you know you look around and I've stayed in hotel rooms that are like 10 grand a night and I look around at breakfast and I'm thinking who the hell pays this because I'm sitting here but they're probably looking at me thinking wow you know is she paying this you know everyone's probably looking but there are people who are actually paying that I'd love to be able to pay that you know I'm not saying I necessarily would but it you know it'd be quite lovely to actually have the opportunity to afford it See, I wouldn't know with all the, it's weird, with all the money in the world, I, I don't know what it is about it. And maybe it's the fundamental feeling of not belonging or not being good enough or something. But I just never do feel at home in those kind of places. I remember one of the loneliest birthdays, in fact, the loneliest birthday I've ever had. I can't remember which birthday it was. It would have been one in my probably early 40s. And I used to travel. I, when I worked for MTV, I had um, people who worked for me in offices all around the world. So I would I would travel a lot, even just to see my own kind of team, let alone see clients or other other things. And so I'd go to Singapore once or twice a year, among many other sort of regular stop offs. And I went to Singapore on my birthday um, because at the time I thought my kids don't really give a shit about my birthday. I wouldn't have done it on their birthday. As it turned out, they were upset. I went. I didn't occur to me they'd be upset. I wasn't there on my birthday. And it was the second day I was in Singapore and I was staying at the Four Seasons. And they put the up when they found out it was my birthday, which they obviously saw on the check in, you know, on my passport, they upgraded me to this massive suite. So I was in this, I mean, it wasn't horrible, obviously. <laughs> Sorry, Four Seasons Singapore, but it was just enormously lavish. And the bedroom happened to be also next to the lift shaft. So weirdly, in that amazing, massive suite on my back, I was literally sleeping next to the lift shaft. So I couldn't even sleep. And then on the day itself, they just delivered all this incredible stuff. And like, and also the office, the MTV office delivered stuff. And I had like beautiful, huge, like an orchid and flowers and a massive cake. And, and I just thought this is, first of all, I can't take any of this with me. I'm leaving in two days. So that's, a, it felt just like so wasteful. But also I just thought I, nothing could be lonelier that I would sooner be at my crappy kitchen table covered in sort of egg yolk stains with a kid giving me a sort of shittily hurried together present. It, I, and it just sort of sums things up for me. I just don't. So weirdly, if I had all the money in the world, not, I, I would love to travel more and be able to, I certainly would love to travel at the front of planes. That is money very oh, well yeah, spent. Definitely money very done it somebody else's money well spent but still exactly so that is a luxury if I could have if money was no object I would do that but I yeah I I just prefer places that are 
um, lovely, but more basic than that. I don't know what it is. So I'm not actually a big fan of a massively luxurious hotel. I, I don't know why, but it's just not my thing. So there you are. Like, make me sick with jealousy because I've, <laughs> I've done all this stuff too later on. But going back to me in my early 20s in Amsterdam and my failed attempt to travel the world, I would have killed for a job at MTV. In fact, I, I MTV, being an MTV presenter at that time was my ideal ideal job because music and travel are both my passions well actually music is was more of a passion than than travel at that point and it's remained a passion um and my trip to Amsterdam was a great failure we managed to stay there about nine ten months moved to to Antwerp for a little bit um never earned any money played in bars for free beer never managed to save and uh, broke up with my boyfriend came back home with no job and did actually get a job in music actually after then um a couple of jobs in music but I actually accidentally fell into corporate events and through corporate events you know I did get to to travel and um, my first trip out you know anywhere really exotic was Bangkok and I was flying business class with a flat bed at like 25 26 and that felt crazy but my heart was crying out to work at MTV so you you stole my ideal life <laughs> at that your point. job how dare you there you are in Amsterdam <laughs> you get flown to New York to get the job in MTV tell me about that New York trip yeah, so that was, I'd only ever been to the States once before, actually quite recently before that. So I'd gone to San Francisco with my kid's dad, although, as I say, that was all prior to us having kids. So, um, and that was a bit of a revelation to me. It was the first time I'd been anywhere other than traveling within Europe. So I'd just not long been to San Francisco, and which I still think is one of the best cities in the world. So then to be being flown. So I was flown to London for my first interview with MTV. And back then, this is the early 90s, uh, early, nearly mid 90s. As, as you know, we know there were no budget airlines. So when we were living in Amsterdam, I'm always trying to explain. So living in Amsterdam, as you know, Know, back then, or you were here slightly later than I was, but there were no, there was no one had um, email over here. It was just about starting to come in. People and some people, some of my friends in London had it, but we didn't really have it. You didn't have um, cheap flights, and you might as well have been in Alaska. So we, it was incredibly hard. You could sometimes find ways to cheap phone calls, but even that wasn't easy. So we couldn't afford to fly back to London apart from maybe once a year, and people we knew couldn't afford to fly here, and there were no cheap, easy fixes. So already getting flown back to London. London for the job interview was amazing because I was like, oh my God, someone's paying for me to go to London and is paying for me to stay in a hotel and I can see my friends. And then the second interview was in New York and I just couldn't believe anyone was flying me. I actually think looking back at it, I think they did fly me economy actually. But at the time I wasn't like, why are you flying me in economy to business? I was like, oh my God, you're flying me to New York. They put me in a fairly shit midtown hotel. Again, not a sort of fancy one that I started to have the privilege of staying in when I worked there. But I remember waking up, you know, wherever the hotel was, up, up sort of north of Broadway somewhere. Um, and I ended up walking down to the office, which is on Times Square, MTV's office, having the interview in this amazing, whatever it would have been, 48th floor corner office of the then president of MTV. And again, it was oh much less hierarchical. There's no way a couple of years later, somebody at my level, I was going in as a manager. There's no way I'd have been interviewed by him. So I got interviewed by this godlike figure within MTV, along with a couple of other people. And then I came and I so desperately wanted the job as you'll relate to Lisa. And I literally, I came out and there were these, those sort of lit up billboards you have on Times Square, like the ones on Piccadilly Circus, only sort of higher. And Beavis and Butthead, there was a Beavis and Butthead billboard with a massive MTV logo. So whatever the, you know, that was their big sort of show at the time. 
And I remember standing in Times Square, looking up at Beavis and Butthead and praying to the gods of Beavis and Butthead at Times Square that I would get that job. I mean, I was desperate to get the job. I then did it. I think I was literally in, in, in New York for the rest of that day. I don't even think I had a second night. And I did everything. I went to Central Park. I, it was, it was Christmas. It was December. I think I did the interview in November, but they had the ice rink. So I went ice skating and I went to like Barney's and I just like whizzed around all the kind of classic spots of New York. And I remember being on that plane on the way home and I went straight back to Amsterdam from there thinking, this is it. I've got to get, I've got to get this job desperate to get the job. And I, I think it was very quick. I heard I'd got it. And my life completely changed. My first week working for MTV, I, I left Amsterdam about six weeks later. My partner couldn't leave that quickly. So he was still here for a while working. I was traveling and, and coming back to see him when I could. And he would come to London when he could. And literally my first week working for MTV, I was supposed to spend it in the New York office, even though I was going to be based in London. So I relocated to London, immediately packed my bags to go to New York. There was a blizzard and we got relocated and had to land in Toronto. Uh, I then spent that. We couldn't get into New York because of the blizzards. I then had this weird thing in Toronto and I've got my mum's two brothers lived in Toronto at the time. So I had this unexpected. I'd never been to Toronto then I was meant to be going to Las Vegas, having spent time in New York. And because of the blizzards, I had to go straight to Las Vegas. There was no chance. So suddenly, my very first week at MTV, it was a diverted flight, an emergency landing, Toronto when I didn't think I'd be there, and then Las Vegas. And I remember thinking, right, you've got two ways you can do this. You can either be like, well, I want some control over this. I want to know where I'm going, how it's going to be. Or you're just going to have to go. The adventure is going to be the travel because you don't know where you'll end up. And, and it was sorry to keep using the word metaphor but it was a real metaphor it's like I, I don't know where I'm going I don't know how this is going to go and I was such an insecure wanting everything in my control uncomfortable person at that age it was an absolute revelation to me and probably set me up for life because I think I could have been someone that was just too scared to do those things I never did the sort of traveling as a teenager I never did a gap year I was just incredibly insecure and scared of life, even though no one would have known that who knew me. So yeah, it just, it was, so it probably was all the things that you think it would. And I, and thereafter, I mean, what an amazing job. I did get pregnant quite, quite quickly. I'm not entirely planned. So that did slightly change my massive freedom. So I had an MTV baby quite quickly. <laughs> so, um, so it was a matter of either leaving him or ideally taking him with me. So he then did come on all my travels, um, either with his dad or with a nanny. So I used to bring him with me everywhere as well as a little baby. So he also had a quite a cool MTV life. My son That's Jake. very interesting because yeah. I know people that worked at MTV at the time, incredibly jealous and it was a very young place you were a, a young person but it was a very young place was, to, yeah. to work for someone to have a baby and be able to take that baby I mean that must have really stood out no one had a baby like I remember they didn't have maternity leave so the MTV London office because MTV Europe hadn't been founded that long before um you know the MTV US had been going over 10 years by then but so there wasn't a proper maternity sort of deal because no one had had a no I don't think I don't think anyone had had a baby um because it was such a young staff so I remember I was put under the US maternity policy which was shit by the way yeah um and so I I had this weird kind of hybrid experience so I had to go back to work when Jake was an absolute weenie wee thing I mean I remember going to the the uh, EMAs, the, the European Music Awards in Rotterdam when Jake was eight weeks old, 10 weeks old with him. 
Uh, I obviously didn't take him to the awards, but, you know, he, he was with his dad in the hotel room. And then I had to go to Las Vegas or New Orleans or somewhere quite quickly after that. So it was either take him with and be a mum or don't take him with. But I do remember going, they used to have these amazing end of year parties. But MTV used to have these amazing parties in New York staff parties. I don't know if they still do them, but they were like incredible. And I remember going to one really heavily pregnant. And I remember I'd had to get a doctor's letter to be allowed to fly to the States. So I was whatever stage, you know, matter of not many weeks to popping and I remember the attempt and obviously at that time I still looked good and I had a good figure even with my bump you know by my second one it was a whole different story and I remember the attention I got I remember someone doing like a henna tattoo on my tummy and and, and I just got like that I just had the coolest experience I was like you know oh my god like you're having a baby so it's like I was the first person who'd ever had a baby but <laughs> it did it did slightly affect I think I probably would have lived in New York at some point and and lived over there and worked from that office for a bit and in fact, that was in the works when I got pregnant with Jake. So th- that was one thing I missed out on. But I used to go like every four to six weeks. So I kind of feel like it's a home from home city. So it was an amazing experience and slightly different because I'd had a, a baby. Very, by then. very different. <laughs> so, I don't know if you can hear them right now, but that sort of juggling work situation. I'm in my parents' place here in Spain and in the other, in the spare room back down the end of the corridor, I've locked my two children. How old mom. are your children? <laughs> They're nine and seven. So that my mum, is locked in a room with the children now and you've got the run of the, the place to- yeah, so <laughs> I was like, record- how long are you going to be I can't use the internet just like shut up and get in there <laughs> I was recording one of my podcast um, episodes with Jack Stein uh, Rick Stein's son who's a, actually really really interesting guest for you because he has travelled yeah. the world yeah he's brilliant I can connect you but yes, and he, he was in Australia at the time we did it because his girlfriend and mother of his children is Australian and I got the time I assumed that he was in um in Sydney and he wasn't uh, he was on the other coast so I got the time differences completely messed up by my this time it was like midnight and I was supposed to be speaking to him at midnight and if I'd waited till the time it was meant to be it would have been like four in the morning and he was like don't worry about it don't worry about it I'm awake and this was like seven in the morning for him or something where he was or six in the morning he's got tiny children like a toddler and a baby and literally so he was in like his his um, his mother-in-law's an artist so he was in this artist studio of his mother-in-law's and he'd literally just thrown the babies in the kind of grandparents' bed because his girlfriend was still asleep. And I felt so bad the whole time. I was like, are you sure the kids are all right? He was like, it's fine. So he literally, that no one was awake and he'd been like, here are the children. So yeah, I had that experience with him, of him being out in the outbuilding with the children stuffed into whatever corner. So I feel it's my lot in life to be doing podcasts while parents are neglecting their children. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's the way of the world. But it wasn't the way of the world when you were doing it. So you're a trailblazer. You're reminding me a bit of like... um. Cheryl Sandberg, is it? The uh, the CEO yeah. of Facebook. I read her book called Lean In. I think, yes. I think we're all leaning out a little bit more now, it feels like. I don't know. Yeah, I think, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I think it was, um, I mean, Jake's nearly 25 now. So I, I guess on the, on the plus side, what I have got is, you know, my, I was pretty much independent with my kids by the time I was in my mid to late 40s. So I guess what I'm, I'm doing it the opposite way around. So I'm probably having my kind of, yeah, my not mad years, but I'm kind of enjoying the freedom now, although I am about to get a dog. So I seem to always stuff up my own freedom. Yeah, they <laughs> so tie you like, down, yeah. dogs. They really do. I've seen it happen to my neighbour. They're lovely, but they do tie, tie you down in terms of travelling. Yeah, although I do think that um, as long as you've got a good sort of infrastructure of people who love your dog and have dogs, then I think probably it's if I'm willing to reciprocate, I think it'll be all right. And also I'm going to get him a passport. So this, you know, he'll be able to come here with me. And yeah, it'll be we'll find a way. So the MTV years sound amazing. Who were you working with? Were you working with all sorts of superstars? 
Yeah, I mean, I was sort of, I do remember that I had, um, so my office at the MTV in MTV in Camden was next to the boys dressing room. So all, everyone who had to come out, all the male kind of acts who had to come out and do any of the stuff that they were recording in the atrium. Or I don't, I'm sure you've been to the building as it was back mm. then. So I used to see literally anyone who was recording anything would literally have to walk. I had a glass office. They would literally walk past my office. So I did see a lot of kind of phenomenal kind of people. I suppose the big ones from those days, and like we're talking mid-90s by this time, the Mariah St- Mariah Carey story of insisting that they were Labrador puppies. And yeah. that, that happened, that was at MTV. So we were all, so she ended up on the sort of balcony of MTV looking out on the courtyard. And one of the demands as well as the puppies was that all the staff would come and be out there. So when they filmed it, it would look like she had like loads of fans. And I remember us going, there was no way I was going to stand in as a Mariah Carey fan <laughs> on a so loads of us were like, no, like we see, we see people like Mariah Carey every day. Like we're not going to fan it because she's, and also get some real fans. We're like by Camden Market. I'm sure you can find 200 people. So that happened there. Um, it was that I went. Was to, the puppy story true? It's true. Yeah, it is true. Um, and it, so that all happened there. I always thought that was a tabloid. Uh, no, it's true. I don't think it was loads, but I think, she, I think it possibly was one or two, but yeah, there was a Labrador still, puppy. Still it's, like demanding a puppy, you know. Yeah. And that. also poorly puppies um and and I was I did I was at the um I did lots I went to lots of the unplugs back then and so I saw the George Michael unplugs and he only had um 18 people there for that and that was amazing <laughs> and I went and I saw the I was at the Oasis unplugged when Liam didn't turn up and Noel did it and then Liam started heckling um, from the balcony so um, I think that was at the Royal Festival Hall I think it was so yeah I had I did I was lucky enough that I met and saw and kind of yeah I was cheek by jowl with some amazing people I probably walked past your glass office on one of the most humiliating days of my career in that I was when I when I came back from Amsterdam and I was working in the in the music industry and you know I always wanted to be a presenter I mean I, I am now and I have been for like 15 years now but back then um I had a massive crisis of confidence my thyroid went haywire and I put on lots of weight and I used to get quite panicky and anxious but I still wanted to do it so one day I was doing um recording some local stuff in Brighton in the pavilion gardens and an MTV scout was there as they used to you know have presenter scouts and I was doing my own little pieces to camera and I was okay and confident there they were like come out for an audition you know when something really means a lot to you it means so much to you that you just you just fail completely. I oh, mean, I you've got, you must have so much confidence, you know, getting No, I screw up, up every time the oh, stakes are high. Yeah, I always screw up. At the time I was like doing corporate events. So I'd be hanging around with like the CEO of HSBC, which is a worldwide organization with hundreds of thousands of people working for them over 80 countries. And he says he was Sir John Bond. And I would have not an ounce of nerves talking to him because he meant nothing to me. You know, I never wanted to work in banking. Soon as I got to MTV and made the long walk down past your glass world office and they put me in front of the camera, it was the same girl that I'd met in Brighton. I just suddenly, my, suddenly I was really inside my own face. It's the only yeah. way I can describe it. I was so terrified. I could not, I could not speak. I couldn't look into the camera. I, I just absolutely fell apart. And she said to me, 
what happened? And I was like, I have no idea. But I, I do have an idea. I was like, I was terrified at the time. You wanted even it too though much. I wanted it too much. Yeah. yeah. And that it would have been absolutely perfect for me. And it was that that later, like three or only like two or three late years later, I went back and I did an MA in broadcast journalism. The very first time I was on the radio, I was like shaking like a leaf, reading every single word, doing the travel news, you know, traffic and travel news, reading every single word from a paper. And then I got exposed to that. And then, you know, got to the point where I could just switch on and do it straight away. And it's just exposure and exposure, exposure. I had to just do it. And now I can do it. You know, I'm on TV all the time without thinking about it. So if MTV, you know, if they want to, you've done your stand up, if they want a 47 year old single mother of two <laughs> presenting like the new bands, although MTV is not the same station. It's not anymore. music now. They no, don't have that. Not. So the job that you wanted sadly doesn't even exist, you know. No. So I know, I know exactly what you mean. I remember the gym. Um, there was a gym on that sort of open, that courtyard on the left. Um, as you go into MTV, that used to be the MTV gym. And I remember Davina McCall was always kind of working out there. She was like the kind of like, a girl of like cool MTV person. I mean, I would not have had the confidence to do it on screen. In those days, I didn't even dare do a presentation to people. I was so scared of my own voice. Um, it took me years to become a good public speaker, let alone sort of stand up or presenting. So I couldn't have begun to do what you did, um, even getting as far as auditioning, to be but honest. But how can you do, how can we be, you know, we've both been the, those sort of shy, um, nervous people in those situations. How come, how come you are doing what you're doing now? Well, you just learn to do it, don't you? I mean, I know that um, I, when I, I, I ran a little production company that was bought by ITV, so I, I left MTV for a bit, worked for this production company, then ended up running it. Next thing I knew, I was on the ITV board quite young you know my early 30s at the time and I remember them saying you know you need to do a presentation for your business and we they'd hired out the um Odeon Marble Arch as then was I don't know if it's even there now a 2000 seater so all the staff from all the constituent parts of ITV were going to be there Alistair Stewart was anchoring it and everybody had to do I had to do like a 10 or 15 minute business presentation and I thought well this is when I'll leave the company like I can't I'll either get found out or I'll literally have to resign before I have to do it and I just sent myself off on a public speaking course I didn't even tell them that's what I was doing and again I look back now and I think if if someone were to say you know advice for for younger people um one of the things I would say is no one knows what they're doing everyone thinks they're going to be found out and if you don't know it is okay to ask didn't occur to me to say to anyone I'm 31 or whatever I was I've never done this please could I have some help please could I have some media training so I just paid for it myself and took it as time off as holiday and then I I mean I wasn't great at it but I was passable no one would have been watching going god you're dreadful I definitely wouldn't also have not got feedback of like you took the roof off and then I just got more I just had to do more of it and I realized I was was all right at it if I didn't have to follow a script or a powerpoint then obviously at some point you do have to use sides and and work out how to do that And, and it literally was just doing it and I just think I matured really late in terms of knowing who I was. So I think now that I I, I don't have high self-esteem, the opposite, but I do know that if I show that and I'm a bit more honest and authentic, people are much more willing to step in. So as a stand-up and as a kind of um, speaker, I'm not afraid to let people know what I find difficult. So, yeah, but it just like you, I guess, you just, when you do it, I've just done it. I've done thousands and thousands of hours on stage now. And so obviously now I can do it. But it takes a lot of effort to make things look effortless. And um, I think we know that. Perhaps people watching us don't realise that. 
And you've got to make people laugh. I mean, that's part of the job. <laughs> I like to think sometimes I make people laugh, but I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, so, but that's a whole lot. And again, you know, as a stand-up, you, you've just got that they used to, there's a kind of, I don't know if people still say it, but there was a bit of sort of adage that it takes about 100 gigs to get to be remotely okay. And you could easily knock through those 100 gigs in your first year if you're easily, if you're committed to it. And lots of people are. But it takes at least 100 gigs, I would say, to get remotely good. And I look back now at some of the stuff I was doing, like even two years ago, I'm like, oh, you know. So, so, yeah, you just do it and progress. And, yeah, that's what happens. Where, where has stand, your stand-up taken you? I mean, I think we've, we've gone there in terms of metaphorically. We know where yeah. it's taken you and developing where it's taken you. And I love this conversation, actually. That's what I love about talking about people's life stories through travel, because it's not necessarily always about travel, but, yeah. but literally, like actually, where geographically, where has it taken you? Well, I, I, I kind of made a bit of a name for myself on the New York scene, because whenever I'd be over there for work, and at the time I was doing it um, on the quiet so I was calling my uh, that's why my birth name's Caroline Beaton and Callie was always a nickname from people who knew me well and my family and kind of friends and boyfriends and stuff and I went under the name Callie Beaton in the hope that no one at work would necessarily know I was doing it and then I did some stuff for Gotham I did a competition with Gotham Comedy in New York and did well in that competition and that kind of helped me get gigs over there. So I did a lot of gigging in New in New York and in the States. And then I basically have always tried to gig wherever I am. So wherever I go, so, you know, I've been to Iceland a couple of times, the uh, country, not the shop. And, um, and been I, to the shop there. <laughs> I've been to the shop as well. Uh, where else do you buy the cakes for the cake bake sales for primary school that no one will know you bought? Oh, I make that. them, obviously. I spend <laughs> I hours, would always get, hours I, don't, I can't buy these from Waitrose and pass them off because <laughs> all the other mums would have got them from there. So I buy them from Iceland and bash them up, put them in Tupperware. But yeah, but Iceland, the country. Um, so I've been there a couple of times. I did actually did an Edinburgh show about my first um, trip to Iceland because it was such a sort of dramatic story. I got dumped at the airport by my boyfriend and had this weird state decided I would stay on and it was what time of year it was but time of year when even the Icelanders aren't traveling through Iceland and went on this ill-advised road trip and ended up getting stuck in a blizzard and I I shouldn't go near countries with blizzards and nearly dying and it it was a quite dramatic story and so I did an Edinburgh show about it called Invisible um, about disappearing in the snow and it was also the year I turned 50 so it was the idea that you're meant to disappear when you turn 50 as a woman but um, getting back to your gig question, so I've gigged in Reykjavik, I've gigged in, you know, Madrid, I've gigged in Berlin, I've gigged. So wherever I go, I mean, I didn't like we went to Borneo with the kids because my son's a zookeeper. We went tracking orangutans in Borneo. I didn't manage to gig there, but I have gigged. If there's a possibility to gig and I'm traveling, I'll gig. Yeah. So hang on. So you're arranging your gigs around your travels, not your travels around your gigs. That's really interesting. Yeah. So I don't... Um, I mean, if someone said to me, and again, my dream now would be, your job would be kind of my dream now, to be honest. Um, but it's, so we've, you've now, we've finally done the switcheroo and you've got the dream life. Um, but yes, I think now, so I like, in terms of traveling with the, when I first was doing stand up, you, you'll go anywhere for stage time. It's just so hard to get stage time and no one's booking you. You've got to just seek out the gigs. Since lockdown, I've realized that I am, I am ambitious in comedy and I, I'm doing more telly now, which is lovely, but, I don't really have a desire even to be hoofing up to Manchester regularly to gig, not because there's not an incredible comedy scene. I absolutely love the venues there and there's some of the best comedians in the world there. But I just think, you know, I can gig like largely within half an hour, an hour of my front door and that's, and the lovely gigs and lovely venues. So I don't particularly want 
comedy to define where I go. But when I go somewhere, I'll always try to fold it in. And there's always a comedy club and you get such good. It's a really good way of seeing another side of a country you're in and you get to meet local comedians. So you've instantly got a little bit of a circuit of people. So, yeah, I definitely do it that way around. I mean, I try now to be a bit better if I'm with my kids or something. Uh, if I'm to visit my daughter, I try not to waste a night gigging because it's a bit like, Mum, you're only seeing me. There three she is nights. again. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. God, Mum's getting on stage again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did one gig in Singapore and that was terrifying because it, they're so strict on what you can and can't say. And if you mm. said, there are certain things, same in Dubai, you know, there are certain things if you say you're in deep shit and I'm so nervous that it might slip out in crowd work. <laughs> I'll end up in prison. So, yeah. So, but I've gigged. A good so story, gigged, though. Yeah, a good story when you eventually well, I, get out. If I ever get out. So, I've, yeah, I've gigged all over the place that's sort of tied into my travel schedule. Yeah. Your son's, okay, there's two things, so many things I want to pull out of that conversation. Your son is a zookeeper. My, my nine-year-old would love to be a zookeeper. That's his ambition. Well, I have to set them my, up for a conversation. Yeah, you should. And actually, if it is his ambition, my because my, my son's ambition was also to be a zookeeper from when he was a toddler and playing with his toy animals. He's autistic and he always was obsessed with animals. He had this encyclopedic knowledge of animals and particularly primates and things to do with monkeys and apes. And so we spent God knows how many hours of their childhoods we spent at zoos, wherever we would go, he'd always want to find the zoos. And we would always do that. My poor daughter, who's got zero interest in animals, or not zero, but she's not a fanatic. Um, and yeah, he still wanted to be at nine. He still wanted to be at 13. He still wanted to be at 18. And now he is. So if your son um, is massively competitive, like people might not realise it's so competitive. It's like cutthroat getting to be a zookeeper. So he's really, how yeah, interesting. really, really really hard to get into and get established and the good zoos uh and your you know the ethical zoos who are properly sort of yeah. working in conservation and, and and the animals are kept incredibly well and all of that stuff and have proper breeding programs and where you know, is he based now painton zoo in, in painton oh which is amazing incredible. i used to live in painton yeah uh, well there you go yeah, well. so, and, yeah it's one of the i didn't realize when he got i don't think i must have been to painton zoo as a child but i ended up um visiting him when he first got the job and thinking oh it'll be like a sort of one up on a petting zoo and i was like, oh my god it's incredible zoo it's like i don't know six times the size of London Zoo and just in this amazing well you know you know this beautiful sort of quarry land it's amazing I've never been there actually because I didn't have kids at the time the guy Uh, that I I ended up living in painting with the guy that I tossed the coin with and ended up living in Amsterdam because I think he still lives there actually Um, but uh, I was in Paris last week and we had two days in Paris we had four we had Disney before that but we had two days in the actual city and on the second day where did I end up Paris Zoo you know just because it's a great zoo actually really good been to every zoo in every place <laughs> and even now I do zoo trips there's an amazing zoo if you ever want to do one which is nice for you and actually really interesting from a travel perspective there's a zoo called Paradisa which is down uh not far from sort of Kent and that bit of that bit of Brussels mm-hmm. it's quite near the French bit of Brussels and it's this Belgium. they've got um yeah it's sorry Belgium yeah. I do know I do know yeah now I know <laughs> yeah. you know yeah <laughs> so yeah cut that I mean considering you're in the Netherlands right <laughs> exactly. now I'm quite good I used to work in Brussels so yeah in of Belgium and in Belgium um, and in <laughs> yeah so um so this Paradisa uh, is this incredible it's an incredible zoo it's on the site of a beautiful old abbey and they've got proper high-end accommodation by the animals so if ever you want to do a zoo trip that your son would adore it's not cheap it, it is proper four five star price of accommodation 
and you can stay literally in these with with glass windows and watch the walruses or the polar bears swimming or you can stay in ones where you're looking out on the bears so literally from your bed you've got the and it is the most incredible real good sort of travel tips that anybody who's remotely and you get access to quite a lot of the zoo at night but only if you're staying there and they've got like a cocktail bar next to the penguins oh now you're talking so yeah (laughs) you had me you had me at cocktail bar by the penguins so that is a combination of luxury travel and a zoo would be paradise which is in belgium not brussels yeah and uh, yeah uh, but those two are you know in each other well one is in the other yeah um and getting dumped in iceland where you're and almost dying in a blizzard what happened yeah that was yeah. So he dumped me at the airport. I ended up in a little place called Helna, um, <laughs> which is on the kind of east of Iceland on a kind of peninsula. And yeah, wrote off a travel. Well, wrote off. You know, got stranded with a travel car. Walked, sort of not knowing I was near Helna, not knowing which direction to walk. Nothing was kind of working. So yeah, that was an amazing way to see Iceland. And I ended up sort of by the time I finally got back to Reykjavik. I mean, I was only there like less than a week, but all that happened in that time. And I actually went back to Iceland with another boyfriend um, about two years. It was totally out of the blue. He dumped me at the airport. Is that I just to this day don't really know what happened. He was a not a good bet as a boyfriend anyway I look let's call him up and ask yeah exactly he was a I, de- I did afterwards find out that he'd got a bit of history of behaving incredibly weirdly with other other girlfriends but anyway that's another story but I went back to Iceland about two years later with another boyfriend because I thought I want to do this trip with someone and enjoying it like in a non-life-threatening way and he and I also got this was not even a time of year when they normally have it we got stuck in the weirdest blizzard and we had to divert to somewhere else, um, like an industrial town. So we were meant to, I think somewhere called Selfos. We were meant to be staying somewhere like beautiful and kind of more touristy. And we just had to go to the nearest place. And it was this weird industrial town. And they did have one big hotel, I think, because people were coming through on route, wherever. And it actually ended up with this incredible views. We had these like windows that looked out across the mountains and the water it was just like it was just the weirdest most wonderful thing like ending up there and sometimes the weather got enough that we could go out for like an hour from there not you didn't want to go much further because the weather was awful so yeah Iceland and me I I think I will go again and I need to go in the nearest they get to summer and stop getting stuck in Iceland in blizzards but it is one of the not tempted to dump you at the airport just for a laugh (laughs) and we did split up actually (laughs) not not on the trip we almost did split up on our last night (laughs) so and I I was like whatever's happening we are staying together until we get to Heathrow you are in committed as am I I am not having another breakup in Iceland we break up about two weeks later on home turf you need to uh, you need to go back a third time and see what happens I'm gonna I reckon you're gonna meet the man of your dream I'd quite like to meet I'd like to meet an Icelander that's I do love the I mean they are a an attractive folk, I think. Yeah, I love a sort are, of yeah. very Northern European sort of Viking. Like that's my thing. Mm. So either a sort of Nordic or Icelandic or yeah, that that's my kind of guy. My daughter's always like, oh, I should set you up with someone in Madrid. My particular thing I love is a sort of like bearded Vikingy pale skin sort of yeah yeah you can see my coloring it obviously it's just a kind of like where I feel comfortable yeah I think I've got one for you actually I'll arrange it off off air let me know (laughs) I'm not I haven't I'm not on any of the apps at the moment I haven't been I can't be asked but if anyone I've come up as well recently I've come up 
Yeah, I can't be bothered yeah. at the moment. Yeah, no, no. If we think of anyone for each other, that could be a Yeah, no, definitely. That, yeah. I think that's what they mean when they say cross-promotion with podcasts, right? You just that's find exactly, each other yeah. We, we cross careers, you know, <laughs> exactly. I've got your dream job, you have my we dream reverse, job. We yeah. reverse dream job. I might have your dream man. You exactly, and I might have yours, although <laughs> I need to think. But if my daughter finds an eligible Spaniard of my age, I'll be sure to pass yeah, on. Yeah, no, I haven't. I mean, I won't get into it, but no, no, I'm I'm, I'm more of the, the line of you are as well in terms of what I go for. No, not the beards can't do bits i really i love yeah. it yeah, yeah i do <laughs> love a beard yeah. where have we uh i can't keep you forever where have we not been in terms of your travels do you have any burning stories you want to tell me uh so where i've not been uh, there's whole swathes of no sorry it's like no where have we not been oh, in we terms not of been. your travel uh, stories yes there? so and i, I was guess, trying to be poetic but yeah, yeah yeah where have we not been so i guess um one of the ones that was a real kind of eye opener for me was we went to South Africa and as then was Swaziland and we did that sort of pretty much backpacking me and the kids when they were teenagers. We didn't go to the sort of fancy bits. Um, and obviously we went to all the kind of anything to do with wildlife. We did end up going to Kruger. So that was an amazing trip and sort of just, you know, being in many places without any kind of electricity and and really basic sort of like you know by then obviously phones long out of charge and so that was a quite an amazing trip that was about I don't know six seven years ago Borneo was amazing went there with the kids and again wildlife driven I've been traveling basically the world d- dependent on what wildlife there is and what my son wants to see as opposed to what's happening with my career so oh, yeah God, so I can really see that being my future as long as I can afford it you know which is I can't but uh, they'll find ways I literally remortgage to take them to Disney um I, I feel like I'm going to be the same like traveling, it's an amazing thing to traveling see, the world's zoos <laughs> yeah and see and also do you can do the more adventurous you know when, when we were seeing stuff in you know on that sort of South Africa trip you know that there's there's some quite adventurous ways to see animals and same in Borneo you know you're not seeing them in enclosures it's actually a real privilege and there's something about um, I do love nature I, and I now know a lot about animals I'm almost a primate expert even though I don't have a huge amount of interest but you do see the world through one of the most beautiful ways to see it is through the nature and the natural kind of habitats and animals so actually uh, bless his heart I've seen some quite amazing he's educated Jay. he has it, and we've gone to good places you know Copenhagen Zoo and zoos everywhere basically yeah. so, <laughs> so there's a lot I could definitely do a whole episode on zoos around the world with you um it's also quite brave traveling as a single mum and I don't mean necessarily because feeling vulnerable because I don't know it wasn't going down that route but I was thinking brave about the logistics of it all because I find the the being the one adult in charge of the two of them in fact I find this at home on the logistics side the domestic side the the packing the unpacking the paperwork the making sure you've got everything all of that is quite challenging not the enjoying of the situation with them that that is lovely to me but maybe because those are my my the skills that I, I lack and I find challenging um, doing all that logistics stuff for three people is quite hard. Yes, definitely. It's terrifying. I mean, I've done, we have done some adventurous holidays together. And I mean, when it probably we started doing more adventurous ones when they were uh, kind of teenagers and not that they could particularly help as teenagers, but I felt slightly less responsible for them um, than I did. Yeah, but it's really hard. And I and I, uh, the kids say to me, they're like, oh, you're much more relaxed and you've got much more chilled out as we've got, you know, than you used to be. And it's like, the reason I'm chilled out when we're all traveling is because we're all adult. Like, what is to stress about if I'm with two 20 somethings? something goes wrong it's not just on me so it's kind of like no I didn't just suddenly get all chilled it's life has got easier because you're older like so I yeah I mean I I do I've got I've had it in 
airports all over the world, you know, where with the kids where I'm like, I don't know what to do. The in Job, when we landed in Joburg, the car, you know, we got stuck for like three hours trying to get through passport control. Then there was the, we'd arranged to get picked up by someone. They didn't turn up. We didn't, you know, it was a, it, that, that trip alone. There were numerous times, you know, couldn't get the tents up, couldn't, and a panther got loose at one of the places we were. And <laughs> it was, and I was like, Oh my God, I literally am going to kill my children on this trip. <laughs> like, never mind, just not give them a great experience and just all get a tummy upset. I'm going to actually get kill my children. by a panther. <laughs> exactly. Cause I'm just, just a shit mum that I didn't even do the research about where we could pitch our tent so yeah I hear you it's quite a pressure and uh, you know and traveling on my own now you know most places I go I go alone um obviously I know people in some of the places but now that feels like such a minor challenge compared to doing it with dependent humans yeah I was there was a time in Paris last week where I was choking back with tears on the way to the airport sitting on the floor of the metro because there weren't any seats the kids were sitting on the floor and it was just packed and I was holding everyone's backpack by that point with the straps digging into me and, you know, like trying to make sure we changed in the right place. And I'm almost choking back the tears, you know, but it is absolutely, it's worth I've it. I've had exactly it? that experience. I'm actually also going to Disneyland Paris. <laughs> so, um, or actually I think it's coming back. We were trying to get wherever we were trying to get next, but yeah, it is. I've definitely had those moments and where you just end up finally getting to bed and everyone's safe and you, you literally like overwhelmed. I've cried in many hotel rooms and under canvas in many locations <laughs> with just relief, shock and exhaustion. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the other side. Oh, so I'm going to ask you my last question now. My last question is always about music, um, because to me, you know, music, the whole reason I'm doing this podcast is because they won't let me present Desert Island Discs. So there's yes. another job you failure. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Because yeah. that one there's you could another... easily do at this life phase. I feel like yeah. I could do that now. I'm yeah. well, I'm well yeah. practiced and well versed enough. So I, I failed at MTV. I haven't yet failed at Desert Island Discs. It's kind of like Desert Island Discs for travel a little bit. But I do believe that music and travel always go very much hand in hand as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask you to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel what is that song and what's the uh what it's actually broader than a song and i'm looking i was i i ended up last night sort of thinking about what would be the sort of um yeah it was the mtv awards in oh, you're just rubbing it in again i know now, i'm sorry you? i wasn't at the mtv awards <laughs> and it was it was it was the so that was my first VMA, so they have the EMAs in Europe, and then they have the VMAs, the Video Music Awards in New York. So, and the reason I, I looked it up was for the date, and I've now managed to save it without the date showing. So I think it's in a September. So it was, it would have been September 1997. No, 1996. So I'd have been in the job at MTV for like less than a year. And it was at Radio City Music Hall. It was partly being there, like, oh, my God, this is my life now. I'm somebody who can go to things like this. I remember what I was wearing. I remember how I was feeling. Um, I hadn't had the baby yet. I don't think I was, if I was pregnant, I was newly pregnant. My partner was over there. We'd find him out as well. And it was the Fugees did a compilation. Um, so that was in Killing Me Softly, I guess, would be of the compilation that was in it. So I guess the Fugees Killing Me Softly and watching them do that on stage at the Radio City Music Hall at the MTV Awards in 96. That would be it. Such a buzz. That must have been just such a buzz. Amazing. Yeah, it's such a buzz. And um, and then we end up, this is going to really annoy you even more because you didn't get the, the um there was I was staying at the Royalton Hotel I don't know if it was that one or the next year but at one of those VMAs 
I was staying at the Royalton, which at the time was a hotel that everybody wanted to stay in. It's, it's not such a great hotel now. Sorry, Royalton. But they had this like vodka bar, this really small sort of bubble, bubble bar that had, you could fit about 20 people in it. And I remember after one of the VMAs, possibly that year or the year after, ending up being in there drinking vodka with Madonna and Goldie and just thinking, this is it. <laughs> this is, this is my life now. And obviously my life was not normally like that, or I wouldn't need to mention it because <laughs> it would have been run of the mill. But I remember like thinking this is it I'm here with Goldie and Madonna no one really asked because it was like you could get in if you were sort of can't remember how I even got in but obviously it was something to do with the event so I managed to but yeah that was so that, that sort of MTV early days in the States um, and particularly the Fuji's killing me softly Drinking vodka with Madonna and Goldie <laughs> seems like a great way to end the episode. Thank you so much for coming on The Big Trouble My podcast. pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I have a feeling I could go out for a drink with Kelly and uh, end up talking all night. I just absolutely loved our conversation. Thank you so much again, Kelly, And thank you for listening to The Big Travel Podcast. Remember to like and subscribe on whatever app you're listening to. 